Welcome to Murder at Land Between the Lakes, a podcast about the unsolved murders of teenage sisters Carla Atkins and Vicki Stout, a 40-year-old cold case that took place in Dover, Tennessee. This is the next chapter, a season of justice, and we are your hosts, Amelia Courtney and Lainey Sullivan. Hi everyone, welcome back to Murder at Land Between the Lakes. You're here with Lainey Sullivan and Amelia Courtney. And as promised from last week, we are going to start digging into some additional cases to bring more information to you guys about either unsolved or cases that have happened in the Tennessee area. And today we're excited to bring a case to you about Kevin Keats. Um, You may recall that we had mentioned him in an earlier episode, um, way back when we had initially started Murder at Land Between the Lakes in 2019, which is when this actually takes place, we were aware of Kevin as a missing person and we had shared that on our podcast. So it's come back around. One of the reasons that we chose this was because it is near and dear to our heart because we're familiar with when it happened. And it also took place very near to Dover where um, the girls had gone missing 40 years ago. So we wanted to really dig into this one as the first one. We also wanted to thank everyone out there for the amazing response to our last episode and sharing so many cases with us. We have so many that we are really looking forward to diving into. And again, if there's any cases that you guys want to bring to our attention, please feel free to reach out at any time. You can reach out via our social media pages. You can always reach out to us via the podcast as well. So Um, Please keep those coming as we are going to continue to do this week over week with new cases to bring to our listeners. Yeah, so thanks again for listening in. And we, like Lainey said, we're going to start with the story of Kevin Keats. I know um, from the past there's been a little confusion of whether or not his name's pronounced um, Keats or Kates. I think Some family pronounces it Kate and some is Keats, but for the sake of this podcast, we're going to go with Keats. Um, And I want to say thank you also to all the family we spoke with and also the Stewart County Sheriff's Department um, who gave us, you know, um, a lot of information on this story. Um, So we'll start with a little bit of information about Kevin himself. Um, Kevin was 54 years old when he went missing. Family, friends, and co-workers have been looking for him ever since he went missing nearly three years ago. Um, Kevin was last seen on Tuesday, August 27, 2019, and according to the police report, he was 5'7 and weighed 165 pounds. He was bald and had brown eyes. However, according to the family, he had bluish-green eyes. He always wore a cap and had a gap between his two front teeth. And the reason I think it's important that that detail um, is out there is because... Unfortunately, if there was ever skeletal remains found, I think, you know, they usually use dental records. So I think that would be important to know. But um, Kevin Mm -hmm. was a Navy veteran and was a police officer for the Stewart County Sheriff's Department from 1995 to 2004. He was known for caring about his physical fitness and was in great shape. He worked at the Shemwell's Sawmill as a lumber grader in Bumpus Mills, Tennessee, and was a very hard worker. However, prior to his disappearance, Kevin had been visiting a bar after work that is now known as the Big Rock Bar and Grill, and he was visiting it on a regular basis. 
Friends there at the bar said Kevin only had a couple of beers when he was coming after work and would leave, but the weeks leading up to his disappearance, he was having these spells where he would pass out at the bar, and they would revive him with a piece of candy, and this led some of them to believe that he was now a diabetic, but it is also important to know that in 2014, Kevin had kidney cancer, and he had to have one of his kidneys removed, and he was feeling great after he beat this cancer, but these passing out spells was one of the signs that when he had the cancer before. So we talked to one of his friends, uh, Ray Fletcher, and he told us that he tried to convince Kevin to see a doctor, but he was refusing to see a doctor because I think he was very fearful that this cancer had returned. Yeah, which is, which is sad, but I know that kidney disease or having like uh, compromised kidneys can also lead to the start of diabetes, prediabetes, and diabetes. So I bet you that he may have been, like, literally just fine, but maybe starting to uh, to be on the spectrum for diabetes, and that could have been what caused him, especially if candy was the one thing that was helping to revive him. Oh, so maybe it wasn't the cancer. Maybe it was just the kidney. But he might have thought it's the cancer because that's what he had experienced before, right? Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so, yeah, on that Tuesday evening that Kevin went missing, he was last seen walking um, north on Tennessee Highway 120 in Bumpus Mills after wrecking his 2001 white Ford Mustang in a cornfield. It was reported that he was last seen wearing a white T-shirt and blue jeans. The family noted that Kevin's entire wardrobe consisted only of white T-shirts and long khaki shorts and work boots. So he only really... It's all he ever wore was khaki shorts. Like, he didn't even really own blue jeans. They said no matter what the temperature was, he only wore these white, these mm-hmm. like khaki shorts. Easy decisions to make. Right, right. <laughs> um, but there was an oncoming car that saw Kevin's car run off the road. And it was around 8 p.m. around dusk, but it was dark enough that the oncoming car couldn't see what kind of vehicle it was. And his lights were on dim, and his car just sort of drifted like sort of just drifted off into this field and it was about a 10 foot sloping embankment where his mustang veered off into the cornfield but there didn't really appear to be any damage to the car and it also appeared that kevin possibly tried to like drive the car like back out of the field but he didn't you know the car didn't make it out um the witness really couldn't get a signal from her phone to call for help so she went to a place about a half mile down the road called bev's market um, that's where she called 911. But when she returned to the scene, more people had arrived, and a man told her that he didn't know who it was, but he had yelled and asked you know, the man in the car if he was okay. And the man in the cornfield said, yes, just leave me alone. And that person was Kevin. But the man who, was the, the man who spoke to Kevin is actually the person who was listed on the official police report as the one who made the call to report the incident. The location on Highway 120 in Bumpus Mills is near Tobaccoport Road and Turner Road. This location is three to four miles from Katy's, Kentucky in Trigg County. You know, I think everyone's going to have to bear with us on some of these locations because um, I've tried my best to, like, look at the map and try to understand, you know, even when we get into talking about the search, some of these locations. But um, I think especially everyone from there is going to understand it a little bit better. But um, I think it'll be pretty clear, I think. Um, but anyway, that's where um, his, his, this location was, exactly. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, but although Kevin was making good money at his job at the sham at the Shamwell sawmill, it appeared as though he had been living in his car. Um, he had lost his home um, at one point, and he was now living in the back of his car, and all of his belongings were there in the vehicle as well, including freshly washed and folded clothes. So he was very neat, and he kept his clothes folded in the back. And according to his family, sometimes he was sleeping at work in the back office whenever he was able to. When the police arrived, the car was locked with the keys inside, and the only thing missing was his pistol that he always kept up in his visor. It was either a 9mm or a 380. According to Kevin's best friend, Ray Fletcher, he believes the last gun Kevin owned was a 380. So just one quick interesting note about that is that the keys were in the car and the car was locked. So he had to have purposely locked the car and not taken the keys with him. Right. You know, something I thought about, Lainey, is I wonder if he, you know, intended to come back and I don't know why I didn't ask anyone this. I wonder if he had like a hidden key underneath, like a magnetic key underneath the to car. To like get into the car. Because I know that they did tell me that they had to like rip the door off to like get into the car. Mm-hmm. So I wonder if he had like a spare key hidden. I'm sure they looked, but I don't yeah. know. <laughs> um, and we spoke with deputy and canine handler Shane Keats, who is also Kevin's cousin. He said once he arrived at the scene, the Mustang was already being towed. It was actually the Tennessee Highway Patrol that was called to do the accident report. And upon arrival of the high, uh, upon arrival, mm-hmm. the Highway Patrol saw that Kevin had not returned to his vehicle and was told he was last seen walking down Highway 120 toward the Tennessee-Kentucky state line. Deputy Shane Keats started walking down the road in the direction Kevin was last seen. One piece of evidence he found was the white t-shirt Kevin had been wearing. It was found about 100 yards from Turner Road. He was able to ID the shirt as Kevin's for many reasons. The shirt had sawdust on it from the sawmill, and the shirt was the same style, size, and color as all of the same shirts that were in Kevin's car. It was very hot that evening, and it is likely Kevin just took it off. He was known to work shirtless when he could and just go without a shirt whenever possible, but they found it odd that he would just drop it and leave it behind. The things that did remain in his car were his wallet, two prepaid cell phones, and his personal belongings, as mentioned before. The cell phone that they found did not contain any text of in, that really contained any useful text, or at least of any importance. Later, we will discuss what was found in the glove box. Kevin had told some of his friends and family members about a girl that he had been seeing in Katie's. This girl was married, or so he said. However, it was said that her husband worked on a towboat and would be gone for long periods of time. The husband had agreed to her having a relationship with Kevin while he was away and understood that she had needs so Kevin would go live with her while he was gone. This girl, according to what Kevin had told friends, drove a yellow Jeep. What an interesting situation. Right? And, you know, I think someone in the family actually told me that it's a possibility that the husband had even given Kevin a job, that there's a possibility that's where Kevin is, that he could possibly be on the boat working. Now, that's just a possible working theory by one of the family members, but I think that's just, you know, someone holding out hope that that's where he could be. Mm -hmm. I don't know why a husband is so willing to help another another fella who's like <laughs> with his wife right 
Um, so this is the story Kevin had been telling, you know, friends and family that this is the girl he was seeing was this woman in Katie's. We were originally told by a family member that witnesses that lived along Highway 120 said they saw a yellow Jeep driving up and down the highway as if this person was possibly looking for Kevin. Now, this story was not corroborated nor confirmed by Officer Shane Keats, and it is not documented anywhere. So I'm not really sure if that story is holding true or not, because we haven't really talked to anyone else. And I know Officer Keats didn't talk to anyone else Mm -hmm. that or any neighbors that saw this yellow Jeep. And to be honest with you, this yellow Jeep hasn't been seen at all. So, you know, remembering that Kevin was living in his car, he needed somewhere to shower. He had a standing reservation at the Knights Inn in Katie's every Saturday night. The attendant at the hotel said he was always alone. He had already booked the room for the following Saturday, which would have been August 31st, but he never arrived. Kevin was married, actually, but he had been separated from his second wife for a year to a year and a half. Ironically or purposely, he went to the courthouse on the 26th, the day before he went missing, to sign the divorce papers. He and his first wife, Laura Shemwell, share a daughter, Catherine, and her family owns the Shemwell sawmill that he was working at. At the local bar that Kevin frequented, he often confided in his good friend, Tammy Beecham. He and Tammy lived together for a short time after he and his wife separated. The two were only friends, and he paid rent to to her while he was living there. He was with Tammy at the bar just before he drove his car off the road. When he went missing, she was able to tell the family some of the things about Kevin's demeanor and how he was behaving the weeks leading up to his disappearance. She spoke about Kevin's feelings and about a DUI he had in 2017. He had an upcoming court date and he told her that he needed to leave and he started to cry because he couldn't bear the thought of going to jail being a former cop. He just felt humiliated. She took it as though he meant he was going to leave the county at some point before the court date. That same night at the bar, she said that he was not intoxicated at all and he mentioned going to Candy Lane in Kentucky. Tammy said that as soon as she heard the sirens, she knew it was about Kevin She never believed that Kevin would ever harm himself. We were unable to speak to Tammy ourselves because, unfortunately, in a completely unrelated event, Tammy herself was murdered by an ex-boyfriend in September of 2021 in a kidnapping that led state Kentucky state troopers on a pursuit that ended in a murder-suicide. How horrible. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, she was taken from... a. She was working at a cash advance um, place, and her ex-boyfriend came in, took her hostage, and I, I, don't, I really don't know this story. This is actually a story we could look into yeah. ourselves, but he, um, I don't know if he killed her in the car before the pursuit by the police, or, but by the time the police got to the car, he had killed her and himself, so this... <laughs> I feel like every case opens up doors to other cases. Right? (laughs) A crazy story, but she was really helpful to the family in telling them more about Kevin. Um, So going back to Kevin here, um, Deputy Shane Keats said they looked for this mysterious girlfriend in Katie's, and no one could find a name for her or a woman with a yellow Jeep, nor did they find a road in Katie's called Candy Drive. Um. 
Yeah, no, they did find a real candy drive, right? They couldn't find Candy Lane, right? right. Yes, now I'm getting confused. They found, they, yes, they found Candy Drive, not Candy Lane. Mm-hmm. But there was no yellow Jeep or a husband that worked on a towboat there on Candy Drive. Mm-hmm. Um, so there is no Candy Lane. There is a Candy Drive in Katie's. Um, whether or not this girl in the yellow Jeep existed, it is believed Kevin was seeing a woman or women on a regular basis. Now, this takes us back to the glove box. Kevin's brother, Jason, told us that in the glove box, there was a receipt from a Dollar General store with a receipt purchased for condoms and alcohol on one of the nights he checked into the hotel, just a few nights before the wreck. We were also told that condoms were also found in the glove box. Now, Jason doesn't believe his brother left the bar with the intent to disappear that night, but just as Tammy stated, he believes that Kevin was embarrassed as a former cop for having a prior arrest, and now that he has wrecked his car and after having a few drinks and having a firearm in his vehicle, he knew he would go to jail. According to Jason, losing his home, two failed marriages, on top of the DUI charge, it was just too much. Everyone who knew Kevin thought he was a simple, hardworking, soft-hearted soul that would help anyone. After his second failed marriage, Kevin fell on bad luck and became depressed. Before that, he was very outgoing and witty. He had, was making good money at his job. However, he was living out of his car. As we mentioned, he didn't seem to have any money on hand. It has come to our attention that he was borrowing money from people, owed a lot of people money, and was charging everything to places that he frequented. I guess the question that remains is, where was all of his paycheck going? Yeah, that makes a, a, no sense because he wasn't living anywhere. He wasn't paying rent, and he had a substantial paycheck. It seems curious as to where all that money was going. Right. Yeah, I, I would be curious to know like what happened to that. I know he had two ex-wives, but I would still think you know he would have some money to live on, right? You know, several notes were also found in the glove box notes and thoughts that Kevin had jotted down, and even some poetry he had written uh, was located. Brenda Milliken, Kevin's aunt, read us one of those poems that that really hit home when we would let Brenda read this. I want to be where I've been. I want to see from within. I want the truth, not a lie. I want to live before I die. That was written by Kevin. As we said, we spoke to one of Kevin's best friends, Ray Fletcher, who is mostly known as Flash. Ray told us that on the Tuesday he went missing, Kevin sent him a text that said, I need to talk to you Wednesday after work. Ray replied with, what's up, Kevin? And he never received a response back. Ray still looks for Kevin and holds out hope that he will be found. If it weren't for the trees, Ray said that he would be able to see the cornfield where Kevin crashed from his front porch. The one thing Ray said that really stuck with me was, he served our county, he served our country, he was a father, and he deserves to be found. Mm. So Amelia, let's talk a little bit more about after, after Kevin went missing and what they did to search for him in order to see where and what happened that evening. So Deputy Shane Keats looked for Kevin himself that very night. He looked down the road, hoping he was just walking down the highway and that he'd run across him. Deputy Keats even knocked on Mrs. Fletcher's door, or Mr. Fletcher's door, in hopes that Kevin had walked to his home just to find refuge. After exhausting all possibilities of where Kevin could be, 
Kevin's mom, dad, and brother Jason went to Stewart County Sheriff's Department to file a missing persons report on the morning of September 4th. Between the days Kevin went missing and the day he was declared a missing person, Deputy Keats went to Trigg County himself to look for the mystery woman in the yellow Jeep that Kevin had told his friends about. He was looking for Candy Lane. Once he spoke with Sheriff Jason Barnes and the deputies there, this is when he realized there was not a Candy Lane, but there was a Candy Drive, and it was only two miles away from the Shemwell Sawmill where Kevin worked. A deputy from Trigg County there in Katie's helped Keats in a search for Kevin and this woman on the Kentucky side. According to Deputy Keats, once Kevin was officially declared a missing person, a full search was put into effect for him on September 5th. To quote an article straight from the Stewart County Standard that was given to us by Danny Peppers, it, re- it reads, Multiple agencies began a massive search on Thursday the 5th. The search covered many square miles around the car where the car had been found. Sheriff Frankie Gray and the Emergency Management Director Clint Mathis organized a search a half a mile around the crash site on Thursday and went back out on Saturday. He said Trigg County brought five officers and a horse. Montgomery County brought dogs. The Highway Patrol officers helped. We had drones and searched fields, creeks, and the woods from Bumpus Mills to Kentucky. But nothing has been found. Not one thing, not one piece of evidence, and not Kevin. To reiterate, that was written in the standard. Deputy Keats was able to give us more details on the search. The search would cover a vast amount of land and all sorts of terrain. Where Kevin's car ended up was actually close to the backside of an impact zone for the Fort Campbell Army Post. This will start to give you an idea of how large this land actually was. Fort Campbell is the second largest Army Post just behind Fort Bragg. It is approximately 105,000 acres. This land is in Stewart and Montgomery counties in Tennessee and Trigg and Christian counties in Kentucky. Part of the terrain they covered in their search was covered with farmland, such as cornfields and soybean fields, that led to a wooded area, steep hills, and bluffs. On these hills and bluffs, there are many caves. They crossed at least three creeks. Much of this area was behind Fort Campbell and led right up to the border of the actual military grounds. Deputy Keats described the area much like land between the lakes. He also noted, <clears throat> along with several of the officers, Stewart County Sheriff Frankie Gray and Chief Deputy Dale Ward was in the middle of the search. They were in the creeks, in the heat, and in the muck and mud, along with everyone else. The Trigg County Sheriff Jason Barnes and deputies from Kentucky joined in on, on the search as well. And as we mentioned from the standard, Montgomery County was involved in the search as well, providing canine support. The search didn't end on the Tennessee state line, both the Stewart County and Trigg County departments went on to the Kentucky side. It was a group effort from both sheriffs and their departments. The search there was on, a, on foot and on horseback. They searched all the way up into an area called Pew Flat. Once they reached this area, this is where the search stopped. It was hard to understand without putting, without putting it, you know, being there with ourselves. Um, that at the point of Pew Flat, it bottlenecked to the other side of Fort Campbell and the other side was residential. During all of this search, there was no sign of Kevin. Now, after many days and zero signs of Kevin, many questions arose. Had Kevin taken his own life and was somewhere where no one could find him? Had he possibly run off and gotten lost in the woods and taken shelter in maybe one of these caves? He was a Navy veteran and would know survival skills well. 
Another thought would be he had gotten into a car just right off of 120 where he had dropped his shirt. Whether he willingly got in or was abducted, we don't know. Did Kevin purposely disappear? These are all questions his family and friends are still wanting to know. The family is torn on their beliefs. His mother, Linda, really wants to believe he is still out there and just wants him to come home. She believes it is possible he is out on a working boat. His brother, Jason, does not believe he is still alive, but would like to bring his remains home so he and his family can have closure. According to Deputy Keats, he really thought that by now, if his remains were in any of those locations mentioned, a hunter, hiker, or even someone on the army base would have found him in the past three years. Is it possible that Kevin is still out there alive? His social security number has been frozen, so if he ever has tried to receive a paycheck or do anything under his own identity, it would immediately be flagged and authorities would be notified. And his bank account has remained untouched. Some of the family members have expressed their disappointment in the search efforts. Brenda Milliken, Kevin's aunt, told us the more, that more could have been done to search for her nephew. She said the community had offered several times to put together a search party, but permission was never granted. A year after he went missing, the family talked to a psychic. The psychic told them that Kevin was deceased and his body was very visible. And he said was near water and told them his remains were near a swampy pond. The irony of this location is that a report was made the day after he went missing by a woman close to Highway 120. She said that she was on her front porch when she heard a shotgun that was near this plot of water. This could of course this of course made everyone believe that it was Kevin, but if you remember, Kevin took his pistol with him and not a shotgun when he left his car. By request of the family, there was a search near this piece of property for his remains, but nothing was found. Yeah, so after all of that, um, we were able to talk to Catherine. Um, Catherine is Kevin's daughter, and what a sweet, um, adorable girl she is. Um, she's 18 years old and is about to graduate high school. And I think it's a mutual feeling amongst everyone that if Kevin is you know, out there, he would want to be there for her graduation, her upcoming prom. And Lainey, you know, I was so fortunate to be able to talk to her and I wanted to hear more about her father and give her the opportunity to tell her story. I have to tell you, I, I was really having a hard time keeping my emotions in check listening to her. She spoke so eloquently and just so mature for an 18 year old. This part is a little personal to the family, but I feel like I really have to share this. I have been following Kevin's story for a couple of years now, as we both have, and I've known their Aunt Brenda has had this like cardinal, this like red bird that comes to her window on a regular basis. And she's been documenting this on her social media the whole time. She firmly believes that it is a sign from Kevin. I have followed her and been watching this bird and I really have you know loved watching this. Anyway, while I was sitting on my couch interviewing Catherine on my, you know, on the phone, um, I was sitting in front of a window and my youngest daughter was playing outside. And while I was on the phone with Catherine, on my computer screen, a text popped up from my daughter who was playing outside. And it said, Mom, look behind you. There's a red bird in the tree. Aww. Is that crazy? That is crazy. 
So we're going to play for you now my interview with Catherine. It's a little lengthy, but I think um, everyone should hear from Catherine and everything she has to say about her father. Um, so growing up, I mean, I had a pretty, pretty good childhood. Um, now, my parents, they, they did get divorced when I was pretty young. I think I was like three. Um, which, of course, as a three-year-old, you know, you're not really going to know what's going on, you know. Um, but other than that, I mean, I had a pretty good childhood. Um, the court system, they, like, worked out a thing where I would go to my dad's one week and then to my mom's another and just alternate by week. Um, and so we did that for a pretty long time. And, um, it was, so I guess I could just get into dad real quick. Um, he was such a good dad, mm -hmm. but I don't think he really wanted to say he was, um, I, I don't think he really gave himself the credit that he deserved really, because he put me before himself in a lot of situations and did the best for me um a lot so he really cared about me and his family his family was his top priority i would say um so we had a very special bond um up, i would say up until he started the, like financial issues and things um and with that became like um alcohol issues and drinking issues and things like that that kind of tore us apart uh -huh. which um I would say the alcohol got the best of him to be honest right. because with that um alternating between going to mom and dad's house um he told me he was he was the type of person he did not want anybody to see him struggle in any way and so he didn't want me to see him struggle, which I knew what he was going through. I knew he was having a rough time um, with some financial issues and things like that. Um, but he told me when I was, it was time for me to go to my mom's for the week. And he had told me, you know, I'll call you whenever I think it's a good time for you to come back to the house. I was like, okay. Um, I would say I was like 12 at the time maybe 13 I'm not really sure um and I was like okay and unfortunately I never got that call back um so I had been at mom's for a very long time and then I would probably say like after a year or two after that he had gone missing okay. and so it it was kind of just like we never really got to have a an official it was well, I mean, I guess we didn't really expect to say goodbye to each other. You know what I mean? Mm. But we never really had that, I'll see you later. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. Do you mind, what do you think caused his financial um, problems? You know, I know he had a good job and was making good money. Uh, where, yes. where do you think the financial issues came in? Well, um, after... I, I don't know how many years after uh, him and my mom's divorce, but he got remarried after, um, I would say I was in like middle, I was in middle school, I think, 
maybe element like late elementary school but he had gotten remarried and I think a lot of it came from that I, I think there was a lot of uh, miscommunication or really a lack of communication I should say mm-hmm. in that relationship okay. and I think that's what really stemmed from it to be honest but also like with the um, alcoholism he would spend a pretty good amount of money on alcohol um, from what i would see when I was over there. Right. Um, and then when he, once he went missing, um, do you, in your opinion, do you think he intended to, you know, leave and go missing or do you think something nefarious has happened? Um, I know that's I a hard mean, question. Yeah, it is a little difficult to answer. Um, well, I'll just say this. My dad, he was the type of person, he he was very intelligent in terms of, like, if he could get away with something, he could do it super easily. You know what I mean? Like, um, I don't really, uh, it's difficult to say if it was intentional or not. I would, I guess I'll say yes, only because, like I said, he didn't want anyone to see him struggle Mm -hmm. so I feel like it was just all of this stress and emotion on his back and he just wanted to get away now I don't think he would I don't think he intentionally would want to hurt us you know as a family and cause us like this worry for almost three years now um I don't think that is intentional in any way, but I would say yes in terms of like wanting to figure things out on his own and come back on his own time. Right. Right. Um, yeah. From what I understand, you know, he was a Navy veteran and he definitely had a skill set to, um, you know, make himself disappear. Um, if that's what he intended. Um, but like yeah. you're right I think from what I've also understood is that he would not want to put his burdens on especially you I've heard how much he cared for you and loved you and I don't yes. think he wanted to put that you know all of his problems and burdens on you right and like with um him not calling me back to you know say okay you can come back to the house um I don't think he really I don't want to say I mean, it did hurt my feelings, of course, but I understood he didn't want me to see that side of him, I guess, but I just never thought it would go on for that long. Right. And now, you know, he's been missing for almost three years. It'll be three years in August, and I don't, I never imagined, I never imagined this would happen to me. You know what I mean? Like, and so that's what I try to tell people who ask me things about this sometimes I'm like do not take anything for granted because it can happen to anyone and you know you see it in the news and on tv and in movies and things and it's like oh my goodness you know this could happen to me and it's like it's awful because when it happens to you it's like oh my gosh this really happened to me and so yeah I never expected for it to go on this long for sure yeah you're gonna make me cry <laughs> <laughs> um yeah and um 
you know, maybe he didn't want you, you know, like you said, he didn't want you to see how he was living, you know, I don't, you know, from what I understand, he wasn't, you know, didn't even really have a place to stay, right? Yes, so, um, my grandma and grandpa, they have his, um, car that he was driving the night of the wreck, and from what we've seen, it looked like he had been living in his car for a pretty long while. Right. He had, he had his clothes folded so neatly, and that was another thing, too. He was such a routine person, and I get that from him as well. Like, I am so routine. (laughs) Um. But he had his clothes so neat in the trunk, folded and just super neat and everything. And so it had looked like he had been in the uh, living in his car for at least a few months. Right, right. Um, so, um, so Catherine, it is your belief that he will come back to you one day. Um. I'm going to be honest. I'd like to believe that. Mm -hmm. Um, Do I think so? No. Um, I mean, mean, that's hard to say because, of course, you want anyone who goes missing to come back. Right. Um, And I don't want to try to say that there's not hope because there is a part of me that wants to believe that he is okay and is somewhere that he can be found. Right. But I'm going to be honest, I don't think he would be missing for almost three years now, and there'd be a pretty good chance of him being found or him being okay or in a right state, you know what I mean? Right, yeah, yeah, especially, um, we, you know, we know you're graduating soon, so I, uh-huh. we've heard, you know, we know how proud he would have been of you, so... Yes. Um, I think, you know, I think we all agree that you would have heard from him by now. Yeah, and that's another thing, too, like, going back to, you know, me preaching to people not to take, uh, excuse me, take things for granted. I mean, you know, it makes me upset sometimes because, you know, like, as graduation is coming closer and prom and things like that it's like you know I wanted him to be able to see me do this and you know I don't have that you know like that's not set out for me and so it it's very unfortunate that I can't have my own father here you know to see me do these great things um so it is unfortunate but you know I do know that he would be very proud of me yeah definitely um he would have been very proud of you. Um, I, again, I didn't, I wasn't fortunate to meet your father, but for everything I've heard, he definitely would have been proud of you. Yes. And he, he was so selfless. I mean, you had to not like, he was such a good person in everybody's eyes. And, you know, he would give the shirt off of his back to anybody who needed it. And, um, it's just unfortunate. And that's what really hurts me is seeing like, because we live in a very small town. Everybody knows everybody where I live. Mm-hmm. And so it's very unfortunate to see the people that grew up with him and knew him because um, he was a police officer and then he worked for the city in Dover and, you know, so many people knew him. And so it's super unfortunate that I have to see people that he worked with and grew up with have to deal with this too. I mean, I believe, I believe that 
it's it's something that affects a lot more people other than just family and so yeah it's just it's crazy i mean i never thought this would happen to me i don't think anybody ever expects it to happen but you know let alone myself (laughs) yeah yeah that's definitely hard um, well, we're going to put um, all your information out there and his information, and hopefully somebody has at least something they can, a tip they can call into the um, sheriff's department, and mm-hmm. I mean, maybe somebody has something they know or at least know where he was last seen and can at least, you know, bring some kind of peace to your family. Yes, and I would say that is the hardest thing is, you know, waking up every day and not knowing anything. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just, it's difficult. I mean, I know whenever we do get an answer, it's probably not going to be what we want to hear. But I'm going to be honest. I would rather hear that than not anything at all. So I'm very fortunate that you have given me this opportunity and my family this opportunity to talk to you and to bring awareness to this because I believe that people don't talk about this enough i mean you can share a post on facebook but you know you have to actually do something and put an effort toward it um so i'm very fortunate for you reaching out to me yeah well absolutely and and again we you know really sorry that this has happened and hopefully you know somebody knows something and like you said the hardest part is not knowing so Mm -hmm. Um, well, Catherine, congratulations on your graduation and, you know, you. you know, you make that a happy time for yourself. Yes. <laughs> you should be very proud of yourself. <laughs> Thank you. Amelia, that was such a great conversation that you had with Catherine. I am just blown away by how mature she is and I am so grateful that she is um, ready to graduate from high school and has her whole life ahead of her. She has a bright future. Um, and I'm glad that she had time to take, to talk to us about her dad. Yeah, it was really great to hear about her childhood and how, what a great father he was growing, you know, with her growing up, like you said, as in her childhood. And I agree with you. I think she has a bright future ahead Mm -hmm. of herself. So, um, thank you to the entire family and to the Stewart County Sheriff's Department for speaking with us. And thank you to all of our listeners. Yep. And if you have any information about the whereabouts of Kevin Keats or know the possible mystery woman or what may have happened to him, no matter how small you think your information is, please contact Stewart County Sheriff's Office at 931-232-6863. And I'll repeat that. It's 931-232-6863. Thank you. A quick side note, the poetry piece that Brenda Milligan read is actually song lyrics from the song Within by Kiss. Catherine said she and her father used to ride around the truck and listen to this song. Thank you for listening to Murder at Land Between the Lakes. Music by Indy 44. Produced by Discrepancy Podcast. Hosted and edited by Lainey Sullivan and Amelia Courtney.